The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. What's going on here? You know, I, I was um, in Sunday school this morning, and uh, Brian and Nancy had Tegan in there. And uh, how old is Tegan now, Kinsley? A year or so. And so she's beginning to, I think she's walking some, and she was kind of stepping around. And, and uh, you know, when, when they're learning to walk, uh, every step is deliberate, right? Every step means something. We've grown past that. We don't think about the steps we take so much. We, uh, we just kind of put one foot in front of the other or behind the other or sideways or whatever. But for her, every little step was get my balance again, right? And, and uh, she, would, she would squat down to get something. And as she squatted, she's, she's you know, like that little, you remember Weebles? I'm showing my age. Weevils wobble, but they don't fall down. Okay, all right, this is kind of her, you know, and I'm thinking that right there in the middle of Sunday school, watching Tegan, I was thinking, you know, that's how we need to come to a new book. That's how we need to come to the Word of God. We have grown so accustomed to walking and so accustomed to, to studying the Bible, perhaps many of us who have been in church and been Christians for a long time, that we have forgotten to be deliberate in how we approach it. And today I, I want us not to be on shaky ground or to be unstable by any means, but I do want us to be deliberate. You know, we come to this book and we might be tempted to skip right past Paul's greeting in verses 1 and 2, but that's going to be our text this morning. If we were to skip past this greeting, these first two verses, we would miss, I think, a lot that the Lord has for us. Uh, I heard one commentator say, and, and I kind of got creative with this and added to his definition. Ephesians is, is a five-hour energy inside a double shot of espresso, inside a Red Bull of the gospel. I mean, this, is, this, this book is only six little chapters. It's a, it's a letter written here to the, the church at, at Ephesus, probably to churches in that entire region. It would have been, it would have been delivered and, and read aloud to those churches all throughout the region. But, uh, but this is, it is chocked full of the gospel. And, and if we don't slow down and deliberately step into every single verse, we'll miss a lot. Now, you're used to, if you've been here for any time, and, and I've been here now as your pastor for a while, and if you're sat under my preaching for a while, you're used to me taking my time walking through books. I'm not going to belabor every little point. I'm not going to belabor every little word. But I do want us to methodically work through Ephesians. I don't want us to be in a hurry. Uh, we're going to be here, hopefully, anyway. Uh, if, if, as long as the Lord doesn't come back, as long as he tarries, we're going to be right here. And now, if he comes back, you know, this series is over, right? Who wants to hear me preach if Jesus is here, right? So we're going we're gonna to keep going, though, until he comes. So I want us to be slow and deliberate as we walk through this. It seems like every word of every line explodes with good news, and, and so that's why I want us to move really slowly. And so my question to you this morning is just to ask you this morning on a holiday weekend, how have you come this morning to hear the word of God? Have you come expectantly or is this just part of the routine? Is this just another sermon, another series? Uh, we've, my wife and I were looking this morning, and I kind of do this every time I finish up a book and start a new one. This will be my eighth book, I think, that I've, I've preached through as your pastor here. So one a year, I'm doing pretty good, um, I, I think. We'll see. 
but uh, ha- have you come with it just, hey, there's another one. We're going to work through another book. Let's just check that one off. Or is this, God, this is your word. Lord, would you speak to us? That's what I want to call us to this morning. I want to read our passage this morning, and then I want to just stop and pray. And I don't want to be the only one praying. I want you to be praying along with me as I pray and asking the Lord to speak mightily to us through his word. So let's read together our passage, Ephesians chapter 1. Follow along with me in your copy of God's word, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so desperate. Lord, the longer we go in this life and in this world, Lord, the more at times we feel self-sufficient. Lord, there are certainly those times, Lord, where we feel anything but self-sufficient and we recognize our need of you. But, Lord, I I think we sometimes just get so in the routine and so going through the motions, Lord, that we think we've got this. And so, Lord, this morning, I'm just asking, Lord, for you to, to stop us in the middle of that and, Lord, to show us just how much we need you. And just how much we need your word. Lord, as we walk through this book, Lord, no matter how many weeks or months it takes for us to walk through these six chapters of this letter to the Ephesians, God, I pray that you would speak in a powerful way. Lord, that you would move mightily in us. Lord, that we might come to comprehend, Lord, different facets of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ maybe in ways that we've never even understood or never even contemplated. Lord, bring those to our, to right in front of us and help us to, to grasp those. Lord, even in those things that we, we know the concept, but we haven't appropriated the reality of it, Lord, I pray, God, that you would help, it, help us, Lord, to, to pick it up and, Lord, to walk in it by the power of your Spirit. Lord, I'm praying that you would take, Lord, these first three chapters of Ephesians and, Lord, just blow our minds. And, God, then you would take the last three chapters, Lord, of Ephesians and, God, that you would just change the way we live. Lord, this is the way Paul wrote it. And, Lord, I pray, God, that this is the way it would come home to us. Lord, we're not here for us. Lord, we're here because you are worthy of all glory and all worship and all devotion. Lord, we, as Ethan pointed out, we have seen that in our Sunday school lesson this morning. Lord, we have heard that in the songs that we have sung. We have demonstrated that in the giving of tithes and offerings. Lord, I pray that it would be no less shown in the way that we listen and expect you to speak. Lord, would you do so to glorify yourself, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to, uh, to walk through these two little verses, and I want to show you three points, uh, three, three takeaways, I think, from these two verses that we might miss if we didn't slow down. And the first of which, I was, I was tempted as I wrote this sermon to, to save the point 
until after I explained the part of the passage and then give you the point at the end. But I decided to go away from that, so I'm going to give you the, the point up front and then reiterate the point at the end. But, but uh, the, the first point is this. But God turns enemies into his enlisted. God turns his enemies into his enlisted. The first word of Ephesians is Paul. And this is typical of, of a letter written in, in this day and age. It, the, the person didn't put their name necessarily at the end of the letter like we do. They put it at the very beginning. And so here we know that Paul is the author. That Paul is, is uh, he's the great pastor, missionary, church planner of early Christianity. That Ephesians is, is one of... Um, one of the letters that Paul wrote while he was in prison. It's called the, one of the prison epistles, along with Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. And, and uh, Paul was, was not in prison for, uh, for committing some great crime or some uh, immorality or something that was just scandalous. He was in prison because he preached the gospel. And uh, he wasn't in prison like many of us would think of today and go down to the county jail and throw Paul in there. Paul was in prison in Rome. He was chained to a guard in his own home. Uh, it was in the days before they had ankle monitors. There was, no, there was no surveillance from a computer somewhere. Paul had a prisoner that was with him for a certain number of hours, and he would be chained to Paul. And, and then another one, when that shift was over, another guard would come in and chain himself to Paul so that Paul could not escape. During these two years or so that Paul was in prison, he was allowed to have visitors he was allowed to, uh, to write freely, and we are the beneficiaries of that because he wrote to us this and other letters. In Acts chapter 28, 30 through 31, it tells us that he lived there in this house under house arrest for two whole years at his expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. And so what a gift of God. When, when Paul was chained to a guard there in this, under this house arrest, he simply saw the guard as one more person to witness to. You think, you think about how God works and how would God reach the, 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 the most powerful nation in the world? Well, one of the ways he did it was he would take a guard from their army and just chain him to the most influential church leader in, in, in history. And Paul just preached the gospel. And he didn't necessarily, I'm sure he did, preach to the soldiers, but he also just preached to those that would come. He wrote, and over time these, these guards heard, and you have to believe that many of them came to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul here identifies himself, and, and I'll go ahead and tell you right up front, this is context, and this is going to feel a lot more like Bible study this morning than a sermon, so bear with me. Uh, because next week we're going to jump into really kind of the preaching of this, but this morning's more Bible study, so uh, bear with me in that. But Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, we don't necessarily know what an apostle uh, is in our context. We, we know what it is, but, but in our context, the, the apostle can be used in a number of different ways. There are churches who identify their pastors as apostles, and uh, in so much as they are identifying them as one who has a message to give, I'm okay with that. But if they're meaning what, what I think the biblical use of the word apostle is, then I do have some issues with that. Paul identifies himself here as an apostle, one who is sent. Specifically, an apostle was one who had seen the resurrected Jesus Christ with his own eyes and had been specifically directly commissioned or sent by Jesus himself. And this was Paul. Uh, most of the time we think of the apostles as the, the disciples of Jesus, those original 12 uh, minus Judas and plus Matthias. 
Uh, we, we think of them as, as being the apostles. But the disciple, uh, the term disciple simply meant a learner. It, it wasn't the same thing. It wasn't one who was sent. A disciple was just a learner. And that's what these disciples were for three years. They followed Jesus around and they just learned from him. And they stuck their feet in their mouth and they, they made mistakes and they got themselves into trouble and, and they doubted Jesus and they, they confronted Jesus. And Peter even heard things like, get behind me, Satan, right? They were learners during those three years, God himself. That it was as if Jesus were there telling you the same thing today. And I would just confront you today is how do you see the Bible? Do you see this as, as if this is just a book of, of sayings and suggestions? Or do you see this as the very words of those apostles written down to represent and to be so definitely representative of God that these are the words of God himself? That we take these seriously. They are authoritative for our lives. So we start out and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. But then it takes a turn. By the will of God. And Paul's point is that this was not by his own will, but it was by the will of God. Paul was very quick to point out that he didn't want this. He didn't choose this. That God chose him. That when we first encounter Paul in the Bible, he's anything but a true representative of God. He thought he was representing God, didn't he? He, His name wasn't Paul then. His name was Saul. If you read back through the book of Acts and and you read through Acts chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and following, you, you see this Saul, how he thought he was pleasing God by persecuting these members of the way. Christians weren't called Christians in the beginning. They were called people of the way. And he was persecuting them because he thought that they were, they were not true people of God, that they were preaching something else besides the message of God. And so he persecuted them. In Acts chapter 9, or Acts chapter 7, rather, uh, he, he was leading this militant movement against God's people. Uh, he, he was, um, Stephen was, was the first martyr of, of Christians. He, he was preaching the gospel, and, uh, and, and he began to preach the gospel. He preached the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the people became indignant toward him, and they went to stone him. And the Bible specifically tells us there in Acts chapter 7, 58, they ca- then they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, or Paul. Saul was this, he was, he was, a, he was a reluctant convert to Christianity. He, he was working against Christ by every stretch of the imagination. He thought he was working for God, but instead he was working against God. He thought he was earning God's favor by persecuting Christians, but instead he was bringing shame on the name of God. But here's the reality, and here's the point, I think, for just in this opening section for us, is God intervened. This is the reason why we've titled this whole series, But God. It comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, where it talks about the fact that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, walking according to the, the pattern of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, but God intervened. And that's really a central message of this entire letter. God intervenes in our lives. Kent Hughes said it this way, at the onset of Christianity, Paul had been a militant opponent of Christ, even an accessory to the murders of believers. But then on the Damascus off-ramp, he met the lion of the tribe of Judah and heard his call, Saul, 
Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, Paul could say that he was an apostle because he wasn't one of the original 12, but he had seen the resurrected Jesus. He was on the road to Damascus on his way to persecute more Christians when Jesus blinded him there on his, on his animal, struck him off of that animal, and called him to himself. God intervened. Within days, Saul was showing signs that he was a changed man after seeing Jesus, the, the, the resurrected Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And so here, this one Saul, who's everybody, he's leading this revolt. He, he leads this revolt against Stephen that gets him stoned to death. Everybody brings their, their coats and lays them at Saul's feet so they can throw these rocks on top of Stephen and kill him. And in just a couple of chapters later, all of a sudden, Saul is confounding those in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. He went from persecuting Christ to preaching him. He had developed such a reputation as a hater of the early church that they were afraid and refused to believe it when they heard that he'd been saved. I mean, they, they, they didn't want to trust this. They, they said, God, are you serious Saul, I mean, we've heard of him. We've heard of his, his anger and his hatred toward us. Are you sure, God? And Saul became Paul, and he became one of the most influential leaders of the early church. He's the writer of half the New Testament. He, became, he, he went from being enemy to enlisted in the army of God. The Bible tells us there that, that the change in, in, Paul, in Saul's life was so radical that his name had to be changed, that he went from Saul to being Paul. He was originally named after uh, the most vain, the tallest king that, that Israel had known, King Saul. He was, he was from the lineage of Saul, and so he was named after him. And when he met Christ, he changed his name to Paul. And, and Paul means exactly the opposite of Saul. It's not tall or vain, it is small. And when he met the Lord Jesus, he realized just who he was in light of who God was. And it became small. Ken Hughes, in his commentary on this, said that Paul's smallness became the medium for God's bigness. His weakness became a channel for God's power. <coughs> the point that I want to make to you is, is one of the messages of Ephesians that we need to get and understand. That God intervenes. And that God takes those who are former enemies of his and he changes them. He turns them into his enlisted. We become part of his cause. Most believers, myself included, will look back at their lives and be embarrassed by some of the positions that they once held. I can remember, and to my shame, it's good that you hear stories of my shame. You need to know that your pastor is, is, is fallible and weak and very much in the process of being conformed to Christ. I remember early on in, in, uh, in ministry when I was a youth minister, and this was back in the early or mid-90s, and um, I took a particular stand uh, about uh, interracial dating. I was a youth minister. And, and I'm embarrassed to say to you today that that stand was anything but godly. I've repented of that. I've asked God to forgive me of that, but I look back on that and I think, Lord, I how could I have ever had that position? 
How could I have ever looked at another human being created in your image and thought that they were somehow less valuable than anyone else? Just about any believer will look back on their lives and find moments that they should be embarrassed about. Something they espoused, perhaps parroted from someone else without deep consideration and reflection. Perhaps you look back and you're embarrassed because there was somebody you used to follow and you used to listen to. Perhaps it was a preacher and, and you, just, you just followed along because it seemed like it was entertaining and, and the crowds followed this person. But you never really gave much thought to what they were actually saying and, and did it line up with the Bible? And was the Bible actually confirming what they were teaching? And perhaps in many of those situations, that person was used in the early goings of your following Christ to, to lead you along. Maybe you came to Christ under someone like that, and maybe you, maybe you were helped in the beginning to, to, to learn to follow Christ. But God would, would later on show you uh, that some of that teaching was in error. And perhaps those things were, that you said or did or believed or followed were with sincere motives, but you've since realized that you were sincerely wrong. You see now the shame that was brought upon the name of Christ. I would just simply say to you this morning, I am so thankful that God doesn't leave us there. Aren't you? That God doesn't leave us in our ignorance. I think about Saul becoming Paul, and as Paul would write and he would preach, how often he must have been confronted with his former life. How often he must have been confronted with but Paul, you, you used to kill Christians. You tell, you're telling me now, Paul, that I should follow this Jesus? You used to go out of your way to arrest people for believing this and saying these things. Paul, what's happened? And how often Paul must have been confronted with his past. I am so thankful that God doesn't leave us in our past. That God takes us from where we are, that he converts us from being an enemy of his. You heard Ethan use the language of running our hellbound race. Apart from Christ, apart from knowing him, that's exactly what we were doing. The Bible doesn't teach that there's anyone that's neutral toward God. The Bible teaches that we are all, without the gospel, that we are all enemies of God Thank God he doesn't leave us there, right? Thank God that he sent Jesus to intervene on our behalf, that he converts us through the gospel from being enemies to enlisted men in his purpose, that he calls us to join him in what he's doing in the world. For some of you, your position toward God, your opposition toward, to God was not merely out of ignorance, though. It wasn't simply something that you just hadn't learned yet or hadn't come across yet. There was a point in your life where you were actually vehemently against anything that, came, that, that had to do with church. Perhaps that's you here today. Maybe you're here and you're here because your parents make you come or, or you're here because someone invited you and you just want to get them off your back and you're here. Or perhaps you're here and you're just investigating the claims of, of Christ. And I applaud you for that, for giving it an honest shot. But in your heart you know, man, this thing, I, you, you think... This is all bogus. This is all just a joke. You laugh and you mock at those that are people of faith. You willfully fight against him. I would simply say to you, God is in the business of taking those who are formerly opposed to him and enlisting them on his team. And I don't say that because I, I stand up here with this 
sort of smug pride and say, oh, God's going to get you. That's not it at all. I simply tell you that in, in your opposition, you could not be any more opposed than what Saul was. And God took Saul to be his own. This is an amazing miracle that we will see all through Ephesians. I pray that you see it um, as, you, as you continue to listen along. Perhaps you're, you're here and you're not a believer, or perhaps you know someone who, as, as a Christian, you, you look at their life and, and you've witnessed to them, you've shared the gospel with them for years, and you think, I don't think they will ever come to know the Lord. Don't give up. Don't give up hope, because God can and will save those who are the most vehemently opposed to him. God turns his enemies into his enlisted. The second point I want to make to you from this passage this morning, as we just continue to walk through this almost word for word this morning, is, but God turns sinners into saints. God turns sinners into saints. In the second part there, verse 1, Ephesians is written to the saints. The term saint was a Greek title reserved for Israelites. Sometimes it was a title that was reserved for angels. But it was never used for, in the Greek translation of of the, the Hebrew Bible, it was never a term that would have been used for Gentiles. It was always only used for Jewish people or for angels. And so when Paul here, who is writing to Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And he says here, to the saints who are in Ephesus, this would have been scandalous to anyone who had a Jewish background. Kent Hughes, again, I keep bringing him up, but he wrote, Hebrew detractors considered it a rape of sacred vocabulary. But from the Christian perspective, it was a fitting word to celebrate the miracle of God's grace. That Paul understood that the gospel Ephesians will show us the gospel brings together all ethnicities, all social classes. It brings together the rich and the poor, men and women. Everybody comes together in the gospel. I have said to you often as your pastor that the ground at the foot of the cross is completely level for those that will come and kneel in its blood-spattered dust. That's not original with me. I can't remember who originally said that, but, but that's the teaching of the Bible, that everyone can come to God through Jesus. And that's what he's getting at here. Paul destroys what threatens to divide us with this one little word, saints. To the saints who are in Ephesus. Let me tell you just a little bit about Ephesus. Ephesus was anything but a bastion of godliness. This was not... Not some Mecca for Christianity. It was, it was an incredibly worldly, godless city. When it was one of the five largest cities in the Mediterranean and in the Roman Empire. There were roughly 250,000 plus people in Ephesus. Imagine in that day, that many people in one place. It was just a, an enormous city. Uh, it was a port city, which made it a very strategic city. It was a center of political power. It was multi-ethnic. It was filled with those who were really rich and filled with those who were really poor. Just like most large cities, there are those who are very affluent and those who are the down and out. If you go through any city, you're going to see those who are homeless and those who are driving those Mercedes and everything else, right? So it's filled with all types of people. It was a spiritual city. And I don't mean spiritual as in godly city. It was a very spiritualistic city. 
There were multiple temples to over 50 different gods in Ephesus. One of those was the temple of Artemis or Diana. And I already talked to Diana Satterfield this morning and said this is not about her. So just nobody be thinking anything about Diana this morning, all right? But it was the temple to Artemis or Diana. It was one of the, the, the temple there to Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was four times the size of the Parthenon. There was a statue there of Artemis or Diana that was carved from a meteorite which had fell from the sky. Artemis was believed to be the supreme one who protected and gave prosperity to the city. All sorts of spirituality and religious uh, activity and witchcraft was going on in Ephesus. And this was particularly important to Paul. We, We know this because if we go back into the book of Acts, I won't take time to go back and read the whole thing, but in Acts chapter 19, Paul comes into Ephesus. And when he comes into Ephesus, he did what he always did. He began to preach the gospel. He began to preach the gospel, and and God used him to perform many miracles. And this went on for two years. While he was there in Ephesus, God so moved among the people that many began to give up their religious practices of idolatry, witchcraft. They even at one point brought all these uh, these religious books and, and books of witchcraft, and they brought them to the city, and they burned them. And historians tell us that it was probably between five and six million dollars worth in today's currency of books that were consumed there because of the preaching of the gospel. Well, Demetrius, you know this story if you're familiar with the book of Acts, Demetrius was a silversmith in the, in the city of Ephesus. And, and his livelihood was dependent on, on crafting these statues and these idols to Diana or to Artemis. Um, and, and, and when Paul began to preach this way and he began to lose business and it hurt him in his wallet, the Bible says that he began to cause a ruckus. And the reality is he incited a riot. The Bible tells us that Demetrius, the silversmith, incited a riot and, and, and whipped the city into a frenzy. And, and there was a particular uh, amphitheater there in Ephesus. And I think the ruins of that, of that amphitheater are still there. But it, it would seat somewhere in the neighborhood of 25,000 people. So a, a large group of people could come here. And this riot that he incites, these people, the city is just crazy, pandemonium. They rush into this temple and for two hours... They don't stop yelling at the top of their lungs. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Over and over again. Just and it's, you know, if you watched college football at all yesterday and you watched some of the the frenzy in some of the stadiums, this would have been what it would have been like. Well, for two hours they shout this, and perhaps. Paul is on the, on the fringe. The Bible tells us that, uh, that he, he wants to go into the temple when all this is going on, but friends held him back because his friends knew that if he went into the temple, they would rip him apart. So they held him back, and they, and they wouldn't permit him to go in, but Paul witnessed all of this, the spirituality and the dark hold of, of idolatry and witchcraft, and I think this is perhaps why it was so important that Paul, in Ephesians 6, that we'll see a few months from now, that he writes about putting on the spiritual armor of God. Ephesus was not only a spiritual city, but it was a sensual city. It was very promiscuous. Uh, Much of it was tied to various practices of worship. I want to be clean with this language. I I don't want to delve into a lot of this, but but, um, still today, if you were to go to the ruins of Ephesus, there is, at one point, tour guides will point out to you there is a stone 
carving on a wall that was down at the port that was a sign, they'll tell you, that was pointing sailors coming off of ships, directing them to local brothels. And this was what was going on in this city. Uh, Ephesus was materialistic, it was politically corrupt, it was very religious, and it was a very sensual place. It's sort of like if you, if you took Las Vegas, if you could pick up Las Vegas, and you could pick up Washington, D.C., and you could take both of those and put them into L.A., that's kind of the picture that I want you to have of, of Ephesus. This is sort of what it was like. Yet Paul writes this letter to the saints who are in Ephesus. And he says there to these saints who are in Ephesus, he says, I'm writing this to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. The word faithful there is not, is, is, is not simply a, a select crew. It's not like the, the Navy SEALs of, of Christianity. It's, it's those who are continuing to trust and believe the gospel despite their surroundings. This would have been similar to saying, when Paul writes here, to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ, it would almost be like saying, to the Christians in Afghanistan. It, it, we, we know there are Christians in Afghanistan, but it just seems almost like those two things don't go together. But God turns sinners into saints. He's not talking about moral people or, or good people or Mother Teresa types. Instead, what Paul is talking about is he's talking about those who trust Christ, who believe the gospel, who live godly lives, not to get God's approval, but because they have God's approval already. That despite all that's going on around them, with all the sensuality and all the spirituality and all the materialism, that they continue to trust and believe the God of the Bible. They continue to follow him. And this is what faith really is. I would say to you that, that this is a lesson for us, that God will have people from every nation, Revelation 5 tells us. That in the end, people from every nation will gather around his throne and worship him. This should lead us to, to realize that some of the most godless cities in the world have remnants of believers living in them. I can't help but to think of a couple from our church, I won't say their name so that it's not on the podcast, but who have moved from our context into northern Africa, in, into an area of the world that is, um, has very few Christians living in it. They've moved there with the intention to work there and to teach there and to be Christians there. They do what Christians do. It should remind us that there are Christians in some of the most godless cities in the world because God has his people there. And this should bolster our faith living in Greenville, Spartanburg, upstate South Carolina. That while there's no one persecuting us, there's no one threatening us with imprisonment or worse. God has us here. He has his people in every city. We should pray for those who are persecuted in dark places that are so much different than where we live. There are still places and people who have never heard the gospel. There are cities around the world where the gospel, where the name of Jesus has never been named. And the Bible tells us that God will have people from there as well. And it makes it all the more important, not just for us to pray for the persecuted, but for us to be those that take up the call of the gospel and the Great Commission, and that we might be people that go to the faraway places that have never heard. 
We must give of our resources and sacrifice of our comforts to go. You may find it hard to see yourself as a saint, but God says that's exactly what you are. I would say to you today, keep believing, keep trusting. Our culture is not that much different than what I described of Ephesus. Part of being a faithful follower of Christ, one who is a saint who is faithful in Christ Jesus, is just every day getting up and saying, God, today I'm going to hear a number of messages that contradict the gospel. Lord, help me to not believe those and help me to trust in what you've told me, that you have paid my price by living a righteous life for me, that you died on the cross in my place, that there is no more condemnation against me, that one day you are coming again because you were raised from the dead and you will come back. And Lord, in the meantime, you've left me here as an elect exile to preach and live the gospel so that others might come to hear and believe as well. The last point I'll give you this morning, and I will not spend a whole lot of time here because the rest of the letter will expound on this very point. The third point, but God turns have-nots into those who have. God turns have-nots into those who have. The typical greeting in a letter in the ancient world, which is what we just looked at, involved, if you were a a Greek-speaking person, it would involve the word rejoice, which was C-H-A-I-R-E. If you were a Jewish person, it would involve the, the word shalom or peace. But Paul gets creative here, and Paul takes both the Greek greeting and the Jewish greeting, and he sandwiches those together. And he does that for a particular purpose because he is again trying to show that the gospel brings these two people that were formerly separated together. But Paul does so in a way where he gets really creative and he takes instead of the Greek word rejoice, C-H-A-I-R-E, instead he replaces it with the word for grace, C-H-A-R-I-S. He plays on the word, and, he's, and he, by doing so, brings these two people together and shows us two of the gifts of the gospel. That in the gospel, he says, God gives grace and peace. Maybe you don't think you have what it takes to be faithful in following Christ. You look around at the world, and it seems like everybody has it all together at times, and you don't. It seems like everybody desires to to do the right thing and and everybody, all your Christian friends desire that they just get up and and read their Bible automatically and they just go to prayer immediately and they just repent and all these things just immediately. The reality is we often see only the best of one another. And that's why we have things like life groups and Sunday school classes and, and other small contexts where we can confess sin to one another and show each other that we're not perfect yet that one day we're going to be made perfect because we will be made like him. But we're not there yet. The good news for us is that God turns have-nots into those who have. He gives grace. I would just simply ask you the question this morning, how do you get grace? Do you work for it? Can you earn it? The reality is grace is not something that you can work for or earn. Grace can only be received. You must receive grace. And that's the good news. That's why Paul says, grace and peace God gives to you. The wisdom of religion says, you get what you pay for. It says, God helps those who help themselves. The wisdom of religion says, 
What goes around comes around. But the wisdom of grace says you get what Christ paid for. The wisdom of grace says God helps those who can't help themselves. The wisdom of grace says what goes around stops at the foot of the cross and never comes back around. You don't need another principle or more willpower or a mystical prayer. Church, we need grace. We need grace in the midst of a godless culture to live for Him. We also need peace. This is the other gift that Paul describes here. And like grace, peace must also be received. You ever tried to muster up peace? You're all stressed out, anxiety's taking over. Sitting on 85 at 8 o'clock in the morning, going toward Greenville. You ever tried to muster up peace? You can hum or count to 10 or whatever you want to do. It's not going to work, right? Because just like grace, peace must be received. When all the world seems to be in chaos, the Christian can walk in peace. Brian Chappell, in, in his commentary on this, just a quote that just jumped out at me and stuck with me. Probably because I'm a pastor and often trying to, trying to put things into you that I can't do that the Spirit of God must do. Brian Chappell said this, When the message of grace yields the fruit of peace, then we possess and reflect gospel power. That's my prayer for you today. It's my prayer for myself. Is that we would understand all these things that God does and realize that he gives us grace and he gives us peace for the daily living. I pray that you would understand as we walk through Ephesians that you would, that you would see that God intervenes. And he turns his enemies into his enlisted, that he turns sinners into saints and that he turns those who have not into those who have. I pray that this book, this letter, changes our lives. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this letter that Paul wrote as he's chained to a guard. Lord, there are so many questions we have about it and different theologians and commentators write various things. God, I pray that we would not get bogged down or caught up in those things that we may never know the answers to until we are in your presence and then maybe they're irrelevant anyway. But God, help us to see, God, the beauty of your grace. Lord, help us to know and experience and to walk in your peace. Lord, that, that we might continue, Lord, to believe in you and trust in you. And God, that that faith, your grace, might tune out those alternative messages. Lord, we thank you this morning that for those of us who are believers, Lord, that we have been turned from sinners to saints, that we've been turned from enemies to the enlisted. God, that we've been turned from those that don't have to those that have. Lord, I, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk in those things. Lord, do it for your own name's sake and for your own glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
We want to give you an opportunity to reflect on what's been said. I realize this morning this has been largely Bible study. Um, I've given you bullet points in a lot of this today. But man, is this true. Maybe today, maybe you simply found yourself sitting there realizing, you know, at one point I was an enemy. And God's enlisted me. Or maybe you found yourself going, you know, I struggle to see myself as, as a saint, but the Bible calls me a saint. Lord, help me to, to continue to trust and believe. Maybe you sat there this morning and you said, I can't do this. There's no way I can do this. But then you heard of the grace and the peace that he gave. I, I don't know what it is that the Lord particularly has to whisper to you today, but I'm praying that you would hear it loud and clear. Wherever you are, that you would hear that still, small voice of the Spirit of God applying the Word of God to your situation. And that as a result, that you would simply yield yourself to Him and say, yes, Lord, whatever you would have for me, Lord, that's what I want to do. I'll be seated on the front row uh, as Ethan leads us to reflect and then respond in song. If you need to come speak with me, I'd love to have a conversation with you. Uh, just make your way to me and we'll talk together and pray together. If it requires more than what we can cover in just a few minutes at the close of the service, I'll be glad to set up more time with you. There'll be people in a prayer room out the door to my right and your left. They would love to pray with you. Whatever it is that God is calling you to here today, deal with it. Say yes and respond to him in worship. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.